This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquariumania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Many consider our planet's oceans too vast to be in trouble, but numerous scientific studies are proving that water quality and the lives of many marine and terrestrial species, including ourselves, are at risk from mankind's waste and climatic influences. My guest today, Fabian Cousteau, grandson of aquatic pioneer Jacques Cousteau, is himself an ocean explorer, filmmaker, renaissance man, and even an optimist. Join us as Fabian describes life as a Cousteau, his hopes and efforts to jumpstart ecological renewal through the Plant a Fish program, and how ultimately we are the solution to this sea of problems. We'll be right back after these messages. Molly, here's your dinner. Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Fabian Cousteau, third generation ocean explorer, filmmaker, and environmental renaissance man. Fabian, it is a pleasure and a privilege to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. It's a very grand plaisir. It's my pleasure, and uh, you pronounced my name correctly. I'm impressed. <laughs> Thanks very much. First of all, you know, I definitely want to talk about plant fish and, and all the work you're doing, but I had a couple preliminary questions. Uh, and I'm sure you've heard this many times. I, I definitely wanted to say that your grandfather's and his work back in the 60s and 70s were a really major influence and uh, led me to becoming an aquatic animal veterinarian, which is what I am. And uh, you know, I definitely appreciate all you and your family have done to enlighten you know, millions of people in terms of the uh, oceanic environment. So thanks ahead of time. Well, thank you very much, and, and thank you for what you're doing. You're, that's actually a very rare career path. Most people don't think about veterinary medicines for the oceans at all. Thank you. And now here are a few personal questions. <laughs> Nothing too personal, but what are your <laughs> earliest memories of life with your grandfather? You know, I know obviously he had a major influence, but what kind of do you remember? <laughs> Well, in a sense, he did have a major influence, so did the rest of my family. As a matter of fact, my grandmother was just as influential as my grandfather because she was, in many ways, the actual captain of Calypso. 
but um, to say that my family in general was uh, was an influence at the same time is an understatement and uh, in some cases maybe an overstatement only because I see my grandparents or I saw my grandparents as just my grandparents and what they were doing as a career was really almost more of a passion sharing than, than an actual job. So it's very difficult for me to distinguish between those two things. Obviously, it led me to what I'm doing nowadays. But uh, in the uh, days when I was young and naive and, and didn't really understand these things in, in retrospect, they were just my grandparents. Uh, they were obviously influencers and teachers and uh, loved sharing information. My grandfather was no exception to that. Obviously, he shared it with the world. But when he was with his grandchildren and uh, notably myself, I just remember sitting down and being fascinated with him sitting on the floor with me, sharing his thoughts on the future of the planet, on the uh, the role that a plesiosaur played in history, the uh, connection between fish and people. You know, all those things that, that allow for us to be what we are today on the planet. Now, I understand your very first voyage abroad was when you were about seven and you went to uh, Papua New Guinea. Do you remember anything yes. about that trip at all and uh, what it taught oh, you? Oh, yeah. Well, it was it was a phenomenal trip. I've been diving since I was four years old, since my fourth birthday, scuba diving, that is. And my first uh, expedition was when I was seven, my first real expedition, when uh, I went away for almost two months. And by expedition, I mean, you know, you no cell phones, no nothing, especially back in those days. You were far, far away from anything, and uh, we were immersed in a culture that lived on a small island called Wuvalu, which is off of uh, Papua New Guinea. And for those uh, seven, eight weeks that I was there, uh, I got a chance to really live amongst the indigenous culture as one of them and got a, a real taste for what it's like on the other side of the planet. That must have been uh, pretty incredible for uh, you know a youngster. I know I would have probably uh, remembered a lot of that and, and uh, it would have affected me a lot. So you've gone through your own personal journey from you know a desk job to uh, ocean explorer, filmmaker, and you know all the work you've been doing uh, for the environment, and and then I guess you started the ball rolling in the belly of a shark. So how did you go from uh, <laughs> environmental products development and marketing guy to uh, swimming with white sharks in the in Troy? Well, you know, it's just two different kinds of swimming with sharks, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> the land sharks to the ocean sharks. I'll tell you quite honestly, I'm much more comfortable with the ones in the ocean. The, <laughs> you know, being we've all gone through this in our lifetimes. We all have cycles uh, that when uh, we're young, we're rebellious and we want to see what's on the other side of that fence. And so that's one of the things that I did was going to a bit more of a business path to check out and see if that's not something I, I liked even better than going and being an ocean explorer and diver and filmmaker and so on. And um, I fairly quickly realized that although that's certainly a noble career, I much preferred what my family was doing and, uh, and I wanted to do everything in my power to continue on in that legacy. That sounds good. I don't know if I'd ever actually even consider the opposite like you did, but yeah, I'm sure I could see if you're immersed in it, it's probably something you want to check out. So... Uh. <laughs> But now you talked about the green movement being limited in its impact on sustainability. So why do you say that? Well, for a number of reasons. First of all, if we keep talking about the green movement as being the green movement, it's very short-sighted. And uh, I'll justify that by saying that, you know, when you talk about green, people think land. And, you know, by default, you're ignoring the vast majority of the planet and that thought process. The planet, if you talk about a, a living space, which this planet is for us, 
the oceans represent 99% of the living space on this planet. So we're by and large ignoring the 99% if we say the green movement. Uh, if we say the green and blue movement, then you have a much fuller picture. And the reason why the oceans are so important to us as a terrestrial species is because everything that we do on land, uh, depend on on land, is derived in some way, shape, or form, or influenced in some way, shape, or form by the oceans. And that goes everything from, of course, weather patterns to uh, things that we eat in our everyday lives. Even vegetarians eat sea life resources. So to make a, a very basic point, if one likes to eat ice cream, for example, you're eating kelp. And kelp, of course, comes from the ocean. The kelp is used to make that nice frothy texture that we all love in ice cream. If we're used to eating greens in uh, our cereals in the morning or uh, for bread, a lot of that is grown in some way, shape, or form with fish meal, some proportion of fish meal in the fertilizers and and so on. So we're beholden to the oceans on a number of levels, of course, weather being one of them and the other one being resources, as well as the pollution issues that we're seeing more and more so in our oceans. And uh, we're quite literally starting to see that we're eating our very own garbage. I actually wanted you to talk a little bit about that as my next question. You know, I had heard about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and you know, some reference to that. I, I had a chance to watch one of your uh, interviews or a little video on, on that. I don't think it gets that much press anymore, or maybe it's really sporadic. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, you know, my grandfather was talking about garbage in the ocean some, oh, 35 years ago, 40 years ago. So the Great Pacific Garbage Patch doesn't come as any surprise to me, but I'm just surprised that we're now talking about it as if it were new. Uh, what we should be talking about is how big and how devastating it's, it has become. You know, the fact that we dump one million pounds of plastics in our oceans every hour of the year. You know, that should really wake people up. And that's just plastics. I'm not even talking about the stuff we don't see, the chemical runoffs, the heavy metals, and so on and so forth. So, you know, with that said, you know, you're, it's akin to shooting ourselves up with some sort of really toxic drug because the oceans, the rivers, the streams, the lakes, that is quite literally the circulatory system of all life on this planet. And with that said, if you think about it just for a second, you start realizing that the garbage we put in our oceans is the very same garbage, and by garbage I mean chemicals and all sorts of other things, including the physical garbage, that we start seeing working its way through the web of life or the uh, food web, uh, as a lot of people call it. And that's a really scary, devastating thing because in the plants and animals that we depend on for survival, whether we're vegetarian or not, we're talking about absorbing a lot of those man-made chemicals. And that should wake people up. Because those man-made chemicals, by and large, of which the hundred and some odd thousand that we currently create, only about 10,000 have ever been tested as to the effects of human beings and their health. And of those, most of them are detrimental. So at the end of the day, what we should be worried about is polluting ourselves and polluting our children with all this stuff that we really don't need in the circulatory system of life. And that really uh, goes to one of your uh, quotes in one of your interviews I really enjoy. Actually, I shouldn't say enjoy, but I think it uh, kind of hits home. It's, <laughs> you said it's not about hugging sharks. It's not about loving whales. It's about ourselves and the survival of our species. So I, I think that kind of, like you say, brings into focus, you know, for the folks who maybe don't realize or maybe aren't even as into the animal portions. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, yeah. as you say, there's uh, even survival aspects for humankind, which, which are important. By saving these animals, by paying attention to what's happening to them, 
we're by and large serving ourselves. And uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's not about saving the uh, orcas or hugging the dolphins or, you know, saving the uh, manatee or, or even the tiger. It's about saving ourselves, and by default, we, we need to be saving all these other species that uh, are affected in the same ways. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's that's a great way of looking at it. And, you know, obviously, I being a veterinarian and a lot of, you know, animal lovers out there, we appreciate all that. But I think the pragmatic approach for some folks, maybe that's the way to kind of hit, hit home for them. Well, not everybody gets uh, as much, uh, you know, not as in touch with those animals as you and I are. But hopefully, at least your, your listeners are, and, and maybe, just maybe, you can reach out to other folks that don't have that connection in ways that they do understand the importance of what it is and that we do and what the message is. Right, exactly. So uh, we're going to take a break shortly, but I wanted to start the conversation on Plant of Fish, which is you know a really great program that you've started. So what inspired you to start Plant of Fish? And maybe tell us a little bit about how it's different from some other conservation initiatives. Frustration would be the answer to your first question. And by that, uh, I jokingly say that because, you know, it's a very difficult thing to get people to understand that there is something below that blue veneer <laughs> out there in the oceans. As a matter of fact, about 95% of our biodiversity uh, lives and thrives in and around that blue veneer, that living space that I mentioned earlier. So with that in mind and seeing uh, the relative success of some of these environmental, terrestrial environmental programs, the main plant of fish is really to try and connect people with the fact that this is a unified oasis in space. And if we're going to do restoration on land, we also better do some in the oceans and try and get people involved, educated, uh, empowered, and get them wet, get them dirty, and get them excited about our ocean planet. So your grandfather said people protect what they love. Can you maybe explain a little bit now about Plant of Fish and how that inspires that appreciation? What are some of the, um, I guess, programs that you're involved with with Plant of Fish? Sure. So I grew up with my grandfather saying that all the time, people protect what they love. It's, <laughs> it's uh, pops up in just about every dream I have. But, um, and that's a very simple, straightforward message. But how can people protect what they don't understand? Uh, I think that's the main catalyst for some of the programs that we have with Plant of Fish is to try and get people to understand why the oceans are so important. And beyond that, try and get them to become part of that solution. If you're as frustrated as I am with some of the bad news out there, I certainly don't want to wait for somebody else to create solutions. I want to be part of that solution. And I believe that most people feel this way. And this is just uh, another platform to be able to give some folks an outlet to becoming part of the solution on a long term. So we have sea turtle restoration in El Salvador with the local fishermen who used to be blamed for the sea turtle decimation. We have mangrove programs in the school system and in communities in South Florida, which is, of course, a nursery to the seas as well, of course, as being a storm barrier. And so that provides for shelter and, uh, and of course, a nursery for countless species that we love to take pictures of and in many cases we love to eat. And uh, in the Exuma in the Bahamas, we have we just launched a program to restore a coral reef that was unfortunately devastated by a boat strike. And one of the few pristine coral reefs still out there. So we're engaging that local community, many of which have never even gone swimming. So we teach them to swim, we teach them to snorkel, and we teach them about the importance of corals and how together we can restore that coral reef that was damaged. Now, with regard to, yeah, I was actually pretty interested in, I know you're working, as you mentioned, in South Florida. Um, you, you also have that project in New York. How did you 
kind of decide to approach, you know, New York, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of, a lot of times people think that you know we need to go into the developing countries but you know this is kind of like home I guess for you so what made you decide to go into uh the Hudson River and and work with the oyster issue in uh the Hudson well and you hit the nail right on the head by asking that question is yes there's a lot of need in a lot of places around the world uh and there's uh, no doubt about that but if I were not to contribute to my very own aquatic backyard uh, it'd almost be hypocrisy and I I believe that you know, to create solutions, we first have to act at home and then branch out from there and lend our time and services uh, elsewhere as well. But you know, contributing in our own aquatic backyard and taking care of it and becoming better stewards is of paramount importance, at least to myself and I, I believe most of uh, the populations out there. So with that said, the uh, Hudson River used to be the largest oyster rookery in the world, 350 square miles of oyster reef or 9 billion oysters used to call it home. It was such a popular item in the 1617 and into the 1800s that the commercial trade of the oysters from the Hudson River is quite literally the financial foundation of what made New York City New York City today. So much so that there are no more oysters, unfortunately. To, to you know, double on the problem, of course, industry didn't help during the Industrial Revolution and beyond. So, the good news is that the waters are getting a little bit better because of legislation, because of people being more careful in the area. And so it's a perfect platform to be able to engage, of course, school children and, and other communities to be able to doing some oyster restoration or oyster plantings, if, uh, if you want to call it that, and, uh, and getting them uh, dirty involved in, and understanding what oysters are beyond, of course, just a food item uh, and understanding the paramount importance. Uh, we unfortunately had a boost in uh, the attention to oysters because of Hurricane Sandy, Tropical Storm Sandy, when it got to New York. Because the oyster beds, amongst others, of course, the, the uh, seagrasses are another barrier, but the oyster beds were one of the main barriers in that area that helped mitigate storm surge. Unfortunately, most of the oyster beds nowadays are gone because of that oyster trade. Right, that's right. Well, I've got a, a lot more questions for you, but let's take a short break and we'll continue our discussion with Fabian Cousteau, ocean explorer, filmmaker, and environmental guru after these messages from our sponsors. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Fabian Cousteau, founder of the nonprofit Plant and Fish Ecosystem Restoration Program. So, um, Fabian, I have to ask, how is it financially viable for people in these communities? Um, you know, when we talk about outside the U.S. and probably even within the U.S., and we'll talk more about some of the other programs to uh, support these conservation efforts. 
Well, you know, the economics of it uh, obviously are a big driving factor. My fairly simple answer is a live fish is worth a lot more than a dead one. And that's just because that, you know, on a, in a place like Florida, for example, uh, which is based on tourism, the fact that there is a healthy reef, a healthy ecosystem brings about a lot of tourism, brings about a lot of dollars in hospitality, brings about a lot of benefit to all those communities. So it's of paramount importance that we make sure that that natural resource bank account is topped off and that we only take away from the interest rather than eating away the capital of that bank account. And that's very similar in other countries, although the stresses in other countries uh, happen to be different due to situations. For example, in Haiti, which is probably one of the worst case scenarios of environmental devastation, the people who live in that country by and large are environmentally and economically stressed. So it's, it's a very bad situation. But there's always a solution. We just need to find that solution outside of the proverbial box. In the case of El Salvador, which I mentioned earlier, uh, I think with the sea turtles, the tortugueros or the local fishermen were being blamed for the devastation because they would supplement their income by collecting the eggs from the sea turtle nests and selling them on the black market. But the idea is not to throw people in jail, vilify them and all that, because all they're trying to do is feed their families. So why not use their expertise as part of that solution? Why not have them become the stewards of the planet? Uh, they're certainly not ignorant of the fact that the natural resource bank account in their aquatic system is being depleted. Uh, there was zero recruitment rate of baby sea turtles for over 12 years, and they had pointed that out. And they wanted to become part of that solution and for us to be able to go in there with our initiative and implement them as the solution is just a real feel-good aspect and provides a very real-term solution by providing them not only income by hiring their services, but in the long term, being able to retrain them into alternate sources of income so they don't have to rely on the black market of sea turtle eggs. It was so successful in the last couple of years that we went from a zero recruitment rate of ABC turtles on the beaches that we manage to almost 550,000 baby sea turtles from foreign endangered species being released in those two years. That's the power of thinking outside the box. That's the power of people. That's the power of community when they have a goal and when they have something that they want to achieve and they understand the importance. And that's really based around education. It's based around empowerment. And it's just based around the catalyst of giving people that opportunity. I think you make a couple of excellent points. I know uh, it's funny when I was in, in vet school, um, you know, I was interested in doing aquatics when I was there. And, and there were folks that, you know, some of the students were kind of saying, why don't we tell the African governments, you know, how to manage their animals, you know, that sort of thing. And I, I think it is definitely important to obviously get the buy-in of the communities and, and as you say, to educate and empower them. Uh, you know, no one wants to be told what they need to do. And uh, obviously, like you say, uh, punitive measures never work. So, you know, I think that's great. I mean, you so, know, you have to work with with governments, of course, because that's the infrastructure that, that makes society uh, less chaotic. Obviously, none of the uh, infrastructures, whether it be first world or developing country, are perfect. But within that infrastructure, we can't wait for others to be the solution. We have to be the solution ourselves. In the case of going to a foreign country, it's about sharing information and letting them make their decisions for their own backyard. I, that At the end of the day, we are only sounding boards and advisors. And I'm, for one, I'm very happy to share whatever knowledge 
gained during my travels around the world in ways that hopefully will be able to be beneficial to those communities locally and internationally. I think that's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Now, I, I had read, and you mentioned Haiti. What are you guys looking at in Haiti right now? So in Haiti, we're, we're implementing a mangrove restoration program. They've cut down uh, 95% of their forests, and they've cut down, I believe, two-thirds of the mangroves because there are no forests left. So they're using the mangroves as wood for, to burn in their stoves to be able to cook whatever meager offerings they're able to cook for their families. So it's a, it's a very interesting project right in the beginning of it. We're actually officially launching it next month, but we've set up a nursery within which the, uh, the local village is actually growing mangroves from seeds, and then we'll be replanting those mangroves in areas that are uh, natural nurseries for that particular environment, which will hopefully allow for that community to be able to have or rebuild that natural resource bank account by leaving that nursery alone and uh, living off the spillover effect down the road from the uh, the sea life that moves on from the mangroves into open water and coral reefs. They're by and large uh, hand line and uh, net fishermen, day boaters. So hopefully with the proper training and, and education, they can make the right decisions for their community. Yeah, there's definitely a huge, obvious delineation. You know, I've, I do some work in the Dominican Republic on between the DR and, and Haiti, you know, where there, like you mentioned, there's just no trees. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's... Well, yeah, all that's, you have to do great. is, you could just look at the uh, the Google map. <laughs> you yeah. Know, just look online. Exactly. You can see the delineation right there. It's pretty yeah. uh, striking. It's uh, it's pretty amazing to watch. Yeah, exactly. And it's pretty, it's definitely pretty stark. So do you think you're going to have challenges with, um, I guess, maintenance of that? Do you feel, and how do you guys support the education and I guess the continuation when you have a other country like Haiti, you know, that's going to be a lot more of a challenge? You know, I, I welcome challenges. What would life be without challenges? But, um, you know, as long as there's a willing community, as long as there are a couple of leaders within that community that are willing to help us manage this within their community, because at the end of the day, it's not a, <laughs> a white man from France that's going to tell a Haitian, a, a native from Haiti, what they should be doing in their backyard. It's really more about empowering them to become the leaders of their community and be able to lead the charge and, and create that positive change so that their future generations can benefit much more so than they have from their backyard, whether it be aquatic or land-based. So uh, as far as the education proportion uh, or portion of it, we have materials and we certainly go in there and uh, set up the infrastructure and uh, are there for the first few years to make sure it runs properly. And we're always there as a sounding board uh, as long as any community wants it. But the idea really, especially abroad, is to be able to have that community take charge of that program as their own. It's not for us to do that, but uh, we are there to set it up and manage it as long as they feel comfortable and uh, are uncomfortable managing it. And when they feel confident enough to do so, we're happy to step back and just be there in case they need us. Another country that I heard you guys were uh, looking at, or maybe you've begun some programs, is, and, and I had the opportunity to visit just recently uh, in Indonesia, and I was pretty shocked in some of the areas where, you know, you definitely have garbage, you know, from the shore, you know, going out mm. for a long time, just for a lot of the communities that are coastal. It was pretty, you know, I, I kind of knew, but seeing it in person and uh, and just seeing how much, as you mentioned, plastics and other things were just floating in these areas was, you know, pretty uh, pretty scary, I guess. What plans do you guys have in Indo? 
Well, so plastics, uh, you know, are just one of the visual uh, detractants uh, in the sense that that's the most shocking because that's what strikes us first. Well, we probably wouldn't say the same thing about chromium runoff because although we probably see it if it was in dense enough uh, amounts, you know, it's just as devastating and, and even worse. Uh, in many cases. But uh, because plastics are so visual, we focus on those, and that's certainly a huge, huge problem. Uh, you mentioned the Great Pacific Garbage Patch earlier. That, you know, that's about the, the spread of it is about the size of Canada. The uh, reality is that in some places it's thin, some places it's thick, so on and so forth. There's a garbage patch in every ocean. There's one in the Caribbean, for example. So, you know, it's, it's about identifying that, identifying the problem and stopping the problem at its source rather than trying to do beach cleanups and so on and so forth, which is also extraordinarily important. But uh, if you take a, a paddle in the mangroves of Florida, I would venture to think that there's not a mangrove forest in Florida or anywhere in the Caribbean, for that matter, that doesn't have plastic debris caught up within it. If you stroll down a beach that's not regularly cleaned at 4 o'clock in the morning, I would venture to believe that there is not a beach on, at least in the Americas, that doesn't have plastic floating up on it on a regular basis. So, I mean, this is a real wake-up call. In terms of uh, Indonesia, we're working in uh, the Maldives on coral restoration. But part of the educational process is not just talking about how important coral reefs are, how essential they are to not only their livelihood in terms of fishing, but also tourism, but also talk about the, the stressors, the problems, including pollution such as plastics and how that, in effect, threatens their very livelihood and their future. That makes sense, definitely. Indonesia is such a beautiful and really multicultural country. Um, and as you <laughs> mentioned, I mean, the corals are such a, an important aspect of it as well. So it, I'm, I'm glad you guys are you know, starting to work in there. It's a difficult yep. thing, you know. I mean, in terms of you're talking about challenges, in many cases, uh, we're talking about most people having no more than a third grade education. In the United States, the average is an eighth grade education. So, you know, education, 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 it's really that important to be able to share that information with people that would have absolutely no clue why it's so important not to throw that plastic bottle in the ocean or that plastic bag or what have you. We're, you know, we're bombarded with single-use plastics because we're a consumer-driven world. In cases of countries that don't have as much as the United States, they're much more efficient about things and many times by default recycle certain items that can be reused. But for the most part, we are battling a huge problem, a huge crisis of ignorance of the actual facts and the actual problems as a, not only an environmental health threat, but a human health threat. Exactly. I had a follow-up question, which I think you've kind of answered, but maybe you can kind of give a little uh, broad perspective. So what would you say would be the long-term goal of your conservation programs as a whole, uh, you know, I guess primarily through Plant the Fish, but I know you're involved with a lot of others as well. <laughs> I lend my time out easily. I am a, uh, I'm a big proponent of not only being a volunteer in my own nonprofit, I'm 100% volunteer there, and as is most of my staff, but Beyond that, I lend myself to other causes that uh, I feel are important or near and dear to my heart as much as I can. And finally, I guess the part that allows me to escape the office every so often is the adventure and the exploration. So I do continue on in the legacy as a filmmaker and an ocean explorer, sometimes with some crazy ideas, and uh, hopefully it captures the audience's attention in a way that captivates and makes them dream about the mysteries 
of a little ocean planet. So those are those are the ways I share my time. So where can our audience get more information about Planet Fish and uh, what kind of ways can they get involved? Well, Planet Fish is very simple. You can uh, follow us on uh, social media, such as Twitter. It's Plant a Fish, Plant a Fish. Facebook, same thing, Plant a Fish. We have a website, plantafish.org. And, uh, of course, you can uh, check out what uh, I'm up to these days under FabianCousteau.com. And uh, I've also got a Twitter page and a Facebook page and a LinkedIn page. And <laughs> I think it's you're, a never-ending story. <laughs> exactly. You're plugged in. I had one more quick uh, question. The work you're doing is, you know, incredible. And you've got, obviously, a lot of... Uh, you know, great infrastructure in that. I, now, have you ever thought about, you know, there's, I know there's a number of ecosystem habitat restoration groups around. Have you ever thought about trying to do some sort of a summit or, you know, doing some sort of partnerships with some of these groups? One of the ones I'm thinking about is kind of near and dear to my heart. Ken Udemeyer has a Coral Restoration Foundation. He's, um, they're based in the Florida uh-huh. Keys. And, you know, yep. they're really kind of in the same mind as you trying to restore, you know, targeting, obviously, uh, you know, home here because of all the issues with the acroporates. So, have you ever thought about maybe doing some sort of like a, you know, a summit or something like that? <laughs> Absolutely. It's just a matter of time. Uh, I know Ken well. I think very highly of him and others that are doing coral restoration, uh, especially if it's uh, as much of an educational platform as it is a restoration platform. Uh, they do great work. And Plant of Fish is all about partnering with like-minded entities. So there's certainly a lot of opportunity there. And as far as organizing a, a summit, there are a lot of summits out there, a lot of platforms out there. If I were one to organize a summit, and I'm not saying that I'm the right person for it, but if I were one to organize a summit, there would have to be a takeaway and an action plan. Not uh, We don't need more talk. We need more right. action. And we need to implement that action. So although it's great to talk about the issues at hand and the challenges that we face, it's about finding or implementing the solutions that exist today and into the future and doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it. And the people are the power. It's not about waiting for government. It's not about waiting for corporations, although both of those entities are of paramount importance. It's all about people being the solution. I completely agree with you. And uh, unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank our guest, Fabian Cousteau, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. Uh, Fabian, you kind of gave us some final words, but I'm going to give you uh, some final, final words. If you have any that you'd like to uh, impart words of wisdom from uh, generations of Cousteaus <laughs> that you'd like to, uh, to give us. Well, of course, I'd love to give you as much as you like. I am lending my time tonight as a keynote speaker at the National Animal Supplement Council. Tomorrow, I'm going to get a chance to visit the Clearwater Aquarium and winter, and we're doing a friend-raiser event there. And I encourage everybody to lend any of their free time to a passion that they have that gives back to the planet as an investment, not as a cost, but as an investment to our future generations. Now, remember, if you eat a fish, plant a fish. Thanks very much for joining us. <laughs> My pleasure. Please be sure to check out the Plant of Fish webpage and Fabian's other websites. The links will be on Fabian's Aquarium Mania guest page. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. 
And until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores, keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy, reduce your garbage footprint, and consider contributing to Plant a Fish. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.